1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. We're going to finish up our, our work in 1 Corinthians 15, our discussion, our, our talking through um, the whole idea of the resurrection and uh, what the resurrection means for us uh, who believe in Jesus Christ. We're going we're gonna to look at verses 50 to 58, so that last segment of your um, chapter there. But I want to begin this morning by recalling the words of a preacher, um, another preacher uh, from long ago. I think it's fitting to repeat what he had to say about the resurrection, about this text in particular. Let me just, uh, let me just read this this morning. There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular. Though the world is his parish and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language, he visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion. And the subject of his sermon is always the same. He's an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name? Death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday every one of you will be his sermon. Grim words. Grim, dark words. Every man fears death, don't they? For the modern man of our world today, it all ends in the grave. Life is over at the day of, of our death, at the day of our departure. And maybe that is the unhope of our world today. But I want to tell you something this morning. It is not the hope of the Christian. The grave is not all that there is. And that's what we've been seeing in 1 Corinthians 15. We've been seeing that there is much more for the believer in Jesus Christ. For the Christian, all the fear of death is canceled in the hope and in the assurance of the bodily resurrection that Jesus Christ has made for us. And so this morning, I want us to think about what that bodily resurrection is all about, what it's like, what Paul has to say here about it. We've learned, haven't we, that, that we're going to go into the grave and that we're going to come out on the other side glorified in, in new glorified bodies in heaven if we are in Christ. That is the only condition. The Corinthians that apparently, the, the church at Corinth, the, the ones to whom this letter was written, they had apparently viewed death and resurrection as, as like the resurrection was some sort of a resuscitation. It was like, it was like after the body dies, the resurrection would be like a, a CPR or something. They hadn't gotten their heads around what resurrection, uh, what, what that is all about. They couldn't comprehend how mere physical bodies could inhabit eternity. And so when Paul talks about uh, the resurrection, he has more than just mere resuscitation in mind. Okay, 
Uh, he readily admits, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God in verse 50, the first opening verse of our text this morning. The physical body will be raised, but it will also be changed. And you and I need to be reminded of that too. We need to know that, that this body will be raised from the dead and that it will be changed if we're in Christ. Paul addresses that great change um, and he talks, he talks to the Corinthians about it. He wants to, them to understand the implications of what he's saying here. And so he deals with, with the character of that change, and he deals with the comfort that flows out of that change. So he's going to describe what it's like, and then he's going to apply it and say, here's why that change is so important for you. So this morning, let me ask you to Follow along with me as I read the Word of God. This is, this is God's Word to us. This is where God speaks to us. This is the inerrant, infallible, inspired, life-giving Word of God. These words that we're about to read are more important than anything else I'll say this morning. So please follow along with, with care. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you one more time this morning and ask that you would take the word that we have just read and that you would fill our hearts with the truth in it today. That you would let the, the glories of what you say here penetrate us in such a way that we understand the character of the resurrection and that we understand the comfort that comes from it. Oh Lord, speak to us from your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a, uh, a, a non-Presbyterian outline this morning. You know, the, the typical Presbyterian outline is three points and a poem. Uh, not so today. Uh, and so you're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, he's got 18 points and uh, no, uh, no poetry or anything like that. No, I only have two points today. And uh, the first one is, is basically questions about the character of the change. And the second point, what we'll get to in a few minutes, is, is to talk about the comfort 
of the change that the resurrection brings. But we're going to talk about the character first and foremost uh, this morning. And the best way I can think of to approach this text is to put some questions to the Apostle Paul, um, to, to ask Paul about what the character of the change that God is going to make in us when the resurrection happens, what, what's it going to be like? Uh, what, what is the change that God makes a believer after he dies? And if you look carefully at the first three verses of our, of our text here this morning, you'll see that Paul kind of describes what that is for us this morning. First question I guess I would ask Paul is, what does the change consist of? Okay, what, what, what is it, what is it that God is doing in us? Paul says, basically, that corruptible uh, mortal bodies, flesh and blood, flesh that will, that will decay in the grave, blood that, that flows through our veins that will cease flowing at the moment of death, that, that mortal bodies will be transformed into incorruptible, immortal bodies. I was trying to think of, if, is there anything in this world that's incorruptible? Is there anything at all in this world that's incorruptible? Any, any physical thing that's incorruptible? There is not. God says he's going to change us into something that we don't really fully have a picture of. The physical body is corruptible, and, 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 and it will decay, and, and it, it's, it's, it's mortal. It dies, it, it decays, it breaks down. It returns to its basic elements. And Paul says there can be, there is no place in heaven for a decayed, or corruptible body. No place in heaven for that. Heaven is an eternal place that according to the Apostle Peter is incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away. It's a place that's totally different from the place where we live where death is a part of reality. The body that is capable of dying and decaying is just simply not fit for heaven. It's not something that is suited for a place like that. It's a body that has to be clothed with immortality. It has to be beyond the stain of corruption. The change that Paul's talking about here is, is one that ideally prepares our bodies, our physical bodies. He's talking about us in our, in our physical bodies. He says, he says, that, that, that our bodies are going to be prepared for the next world. It means difference. It doesn't mean that we're going to be, um, uh, we're not going to be just beeping souls floating around in the mist of heaven. You know, we're not, we're not going to be fat little cherubs uh, strumming harps on the clouds. It's not, that's, not, that's not the picture of glory. That is not what heaven is about. Paul says that we're going to carry these bodies, but they are going to be changed from the state that they are in in this fallen world into an imperishable kind of a body now i i i, I think that they say that a twinkie uh can last for like uh, uh you know 200 years or something we're going to be better than that okay 
Is Eric here this morning? I should ask uh, or, you. Know, anyway, we're, we're going to have a body that's not going to be subject to the realities of the fall, to the realities of death, a change in, in form. This body will not be destroyed or abandoned. It will be changed. And it'll be changed for the better, by the way. Second question I'd put to Paul. All right. These bodies are going to be changed. Who's going to be changed? Who are the ones who are included in that change? Well, the good news is Paul says we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The word sleep was, was the uh, early Christians' uh, favorite expression for death. You know that, don't you? You realize that when Lazarus, Jesus' friend, uh, died, when Lazarus died, Jesus literally said to his disciples, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Jesus' words out of John chapter 11. Lazarus had died, but Jesus calls it sleep. We shall not all sleep, Paul says, but we shall all be changed. What a tranquil, peaceful way to talk about death as sleep. We don't, we don't picture death that way, do we? Our reality with death is not that it's just sleep, but that's what it is. So when Paul says we shall not all sleep, he means that not all Christians are going to die. All right. I'm hoping that I'm part of that group. Aren't you? Because I know what Paul means by that. That I won't have to face death if I'm still alive when Jesus returns. Christians are going to all receive glorified bodies. Some will receive it without having to go through the process of death and dying. Who are those people? They are Christians who are alive when Jesus returns to earth to take his church home. I pray that Jesus comes soon. I really do. As I look at my world, and I know that I am not the only Christian who has longed for this or felt this way, but don't you long for the return of Jesus? Don't you long for that day when all things will be made right, when the promises of 1 Corinthians 15 will be realized, when you will be able to participate in, in glory in heaven, in, what, in a new recreated heaven and earth? I long for that day. If I'm alive when Jesus returns, he's going to take me home. But not only that, if I'm not alive when Jesus dies... He's going to take me home first. Those who are in the grave, the text says, shall rise first. And then those who are alive will be caught up with him in the air. It's going to be a glorious day. It's, going to, it's, it's overwhelming to think about. Uh, these people, when Jesus comes, are going to be scooped up to him, and they're going to receive their glorified body in the process of being scooped up. You know what the, the, word, the word that everybody uses for that is? It's called the rapture. Do I believe in a rapture? Absolutely, I believe in a rapture. That is what the truth of the scriptures teach. Now, there are about a bazillion theories about what the rapture is like. Let me tell you, this is what I believe about the rapture. 
no less, no more. I believe that that is exactly what's going to happen. Paul goes into a little more detail about the the entay, the, 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 the rapture, the, going, the goings-on of the last day. He says this in his letter to, uh, the first letter to the Thessalonian church. He says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. First Thessalonians 4. What a beautiful picture that is. So who's going to be changed? Every single child of God is going to be changed that way. Those who've already died will be raised up first. Those, and they'll receive their glorified bodies, and then those um, who are alive when the Lord is here, when the Lord appears, will be caught up and receive their bodies. All right, so we've answered two questions. Uh, what, is, what are the change, what does it consist of? Uh, what are the things that are included, or who are the ones included in the uh, change? Third question, how will that great change take place? Look at verse 52 of the text. Paul says that that great change is going to take place in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The literal word that he uses in uh, verse 53 there is uh, the word atmos. A-T-M-O-S would be the English equivalent of the Greek word there. It's the word that we get atom from. In a particle of time, in, in just a flash of time, in the amount of time it takes you to blink your eye. Now, now all of a sudden, everybody's thinking about blinking their eyes, right? In that, in that amount of time, that's when it will take place. It's going to take place suddenly and rapidly in a particle of time. When will this change occur? Paul says the change occurs at the last trumpet, verse 52. The trumpet is going to sound when the Lord Jesus returns to rapture, to scoop up his saints. You look at Paul's words to the Thessalonians, by the way. If you, maybe you've got your thumb there still. 1 Thessalonians 4. He says that, that Jesus is going to return with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. It's the same trumpet that Paul refers to here in Corinthians. The trumpet has always been associated with festive occasions. No occasion uh, could possibly be more festive than, than the day when Jesus returns to take his people home. It's going to be a party, y'all. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be off the charts. It's like nothing we can conceive. It's like nothing we've ever conceived. The trumpet will sound. When the trumpet blasts, not a single one of God's people will be neglected. Not one. Not one. So often we think, I'm not worthy. God doesn't, God doesn't really love me, or, or I don't love God enough to be sure of my salvation. Not one of God's elect is going to be left behind. We have a great hope. The Lord spoke, our Lord Jesus spoke about the sound of the trumpet. He said, he says, 
at the sound of a great trumpet, uh, uh, he would summon all the elect to himself in Matthew chapter 24. Um, that's what Paul is alluding to in both of these passages in, Th- in Thessalonians and in Corinthians here this morning. You know, the other thing about the trumpet is this. The trumpet is like the final call. It's like there is no further warning given to men. Time will have run out. The end has come. The last of all trumpets sounds from heaven to herald the resurrection of the dead and the overflow of death and the final enemy. The trumpet sounds with finality. So those are the questions that I think we can put to the text here to understand what Paul is saying. So it's good to understand what he's saying here and and to take his words and to, to let them have their way with our hearts. But how do we derive the comfort of the resurrection? To many Christians, the the second coming of Christ uh, is a doctrine for debate and discussion and argument and disagreement and ugliness. The the day I was examined before uh, Presbytery uh, for my ordination exam was in Greenville, South Carolina, and we had taken the church van to uh, Columbia, South uh, Carolina, Palmetto Presbytery was the whole state of South Carolina at that point. And um, we had a van load of people. We had uh, uh, Paul Settle, who was my uh, boss. He was a senior pastor and several elders from our church, about a 900-member church, maybe a little less than that at that point, but we were, we were 750 members or so. So we had a number of elders with us. We had couple of elders from other churches, a couple of other pastors, and we had brought along with us a seminary student uh, from Bob Jones uh, who was uh, going to seminary and was worshiping with us at Second Pres. And, and um, we all drove down to Columbia, and uh, I stood for my exams along with a couple of other fellows, and uh, the, days of my, the day of my exam was uh, uh, we had to preach. We had to preach a sermon before the presbytery, and I don't know if you can get your head around what that's like. But you're preaching and you're a neophyte. You're a newbie. You're, you're just beginning, you know. And you're preaching to a room full of seasoned preachers who have been doing this for 20 years, 30 years, who knows how long. And they are judging your theology. They are judging everything that you say. They are weighting your exegetical skills with the, the language. They want to hear how you make application, how you illustrate. They want to hear a good sermon. And after you're through preaching, and they serve lunch. Well, guys who are up for ordination hardly ever eat lunch, okay? And there's a reason for that because the oral exam is after lunch, okay? And I can remember I stood on the floor of the presbytery, and there were, there were four of us who were being examined. So there is Dr. Morton Smith who is standing next to me. Dr. Smith was the founder of the PCA. He was the guy who wrote the PCA Book of Church Order. He taught systematic theology at RTS. He was being examined to be a stated supply. So he's standing here. I'm standing next to Dr. Smith. Then there are two other guys, David Frierson, and I forget who the third guy was, to be honest. The first question goes to Dr. Smith from the floor of the presbytery. After they've examined us in theology, 
Bible knowledge, book or church order, uh, church uh, sacraments, and in Hebrew and Greek. They handed me the Greek, I mean the Hebrew Old Testament, and they said, turn to Isaiah 6, it wasn't 6, it was Isaiah 35, I think, or something like that, and translate the first three verses for us out of the Hebrew. They handed me a Hebrew Bible. In God's grace, I'd had my quiet time out of Isaiah 36 or whatever chapter it was. Because my Hebrew skills are like zero, okay? I was able to struggle through that. But all right, so we're standing there. Dr. Smith gets the first question from the floor of the presbytery. Dr. Smith, was Adam created out of organic or inorganic dust? I'm like, I have suddenly become a puddle of protoplasm uh, on the floor. I mean, I am just, I am like slime. I'm like, oh my goodness, I have never even thought in those categories, you know? And Dr. Smith, by the way, the answer to that question is organic. The other days of creation had already taken place, so it was organic. <laughs> Blew me away. I'm, I'm like quaking, you know? And the next question comes to me. So I've had a day like that. I mean, they, they grill us on everything, on everything. And it's, it's, a, it's a stressful day. Your adrenaline is, is, you know, through the roof. Finally, Presbytery ends. It's 8.30 at night. It's dark. It's cold because it was winter. And uh, we're driving from Columbia back to Greenville, South Carolina. Well, I'm the young guy. I'm the new guy. And so Paul Settle says, Richard, you drive the church van. I've never driven this church van before, but you drive. And um, next to me sits Henry Martin, the Bob Jones seminary student. We're just outside or on the north side of Greenville, I mean of uh, Columbia, when uh, Henry starts. Well, Richard, what do you think about the second coming? I understand you're amillennial. Well, I'm not amillennial. I'm premillennial in my view of the second coming, and I don't agree with you, and I think you were wrong. And he begins to debate me in the van on the way back after having already gone through a presbytery debate, and my boss is sitting behind me, as well as my ruling elders and some other pastors in the church, and I'm going... <laughs> Henry, I really... I'm committed to the amillennial view, and here's why I believe that it's covenantal, and I think that that settles the case. Enough said. I'm driving us, to, you know, I'm driving us home. And I, won't, I just won't engage him anymore after that. I'm like, I'm done. I'm finished. So many Christians want to spend their days arguing over the second coming of Christ. You know, there, there are those who are who are pre-mill, there are those who are post-mill, there are those who are amillennial, there are those who are preterists, there are those who are partial preterists, There's, there are those who believe, you know, a, a thousand different views about the, the second coming of Christ. Let me tell you the easiest thing to say about the second coming of Christ. He is coming again, and I am going home with him. Beyond that, it doesn't really matter. I mean, the reality of the matter is, but to many Christians... It's just a matter of doctrinal debate and speculation. So many believers have fallen out with each other over some minute detail of prophetic teaching. Let's be honest. It's prophecy. We probably don't get it right. Although I think the amillennials do. 
we don't get it all right. Let's don't let that be a dividing point. Paul and the other apostles talk about the second coming in different categories than you and I do, than, than the church does. Paul talks about the second coming in very practical terms. You know, as a pastor, I, I've preached for a long time, and, and I've been asked on more than one occasion to preach through the book of Revelation. And I, I have gladly done that over the years. And I'll tell you my approach to the book of Revelation. I think the book of Revelation is written pastorally. I think the book of Revelation is not written to give us a timetable and to give us the particulars and the, the gritty details of the second coming of Christ. It is written to comfort our hearts and our souls that Jesus Christ is sovereign and that he is in charge and that he's going to take his church home and we are safe in him and he is reigning and ruling in the universe. I think Paul takes that approach too very practically. Paul told the Thessalonians about the second coming and look how he wraps up his teaching. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, therefore comfort one another with these words. The second coming of Christ ought not be a matter that gets us all tied up in knots. It ought to be a matter of comfort for those of us who know and love Jesus Christ. He does the same thing in Corinthians here in our text. Before he closes this part of the letter, he emphasizes the comfort and the confidence that flows from the change awaiting the children of God. He does that in verses 54 to the end of this chapter here through verse 58. I think what he says about comfort basically breaks down into two things. He says, first of all, he talks about the confidence that we have with the future. He says, look, Paul, Paul thinks about it. He says, death where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? In verse 55. That glorious instant transformation uh, for both the dead and the living gives us the ability to actually taunt death. Paul's words here, he's basically, he's throwing rocks at death. He's saying, death, you don't have any power. Death, where's your, gra where's your sting? Where's your victory, O oh grave? Have you ever really thought about how you'll handle that grand moment when Christ's people meet him in the air? What's it going to be like for you when the rapture, when that scooping up of God's people, the living and the dead, and we meet him in the air? What's that moment going to be like for you? Have you yeah, I've really never thought about it until this, what it's going to be like. You know, how it's going to feel. What's, surely the first thing that we're going to want to do at that moment is we're, certainly we're going to want to sing praise to God for what he's done, right? Don't you think your heart is just going to burst forth with praise to him for the, for the fact that we are his and that we are safe at last, that we are home with him? I think maybe the next thing we're going to do is maybe we'll turn back and we're going to look at those empty graves from which we have come. And Paul's words are going to be on our lips. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? You know, death has played a monstrous role in every one of our lives, hasn't it? Death, death has de deprived us of our loved ones, sometimes taken well before their time. It has terrorized, it's tyrannized us, it's caused our feeble hearts to tremble. Death is a hard, awful reality. It's diminished our joy. It, it's put that dark cloud over some of our happiest moments. 
It's like it's, it's the reality that's always hovering out there. It is the, it is, it is the, it, it's like the worst final exam you could ever face in so many ways, isn't it? If you're a student, you know what that feels like. Always menacing on the horizon. On that glorious day, death will finally be beaten once and for all. Never to terrorize, never to tyrannize again. And I think, I for one, I'm going to sing praise. I don't have any doubt that that's going to happen. I'm probably going to look back and taunt uh, uh, death with the same kind of words that the Apostle Paul used. And I'm probably going to thumb my nose and say, you can't touch this on my way to heaven. Death has had a reign of terror. And it's going to be over. Paul says the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. How does any child of God, does anybody here need an explanation of what the sting of death is? I don't think so. The anguish, the fear, the terror of death, the dread. Paul says that the root of that anxiety, the root of that dread is sin. His point is this, is that sin brought death into the world, but it's sin that gives death its power to terrorize us. I think every man, intuitively, in his heart, understands that at some point we're going to stand before God, before holy God, and we're going to have to give account for ourselves, for our sins. And that that's such an overwhelming thought that we can't help but shrink away from it. We all know we're going to stand before God. Where does sin get its ability to terrorize it? The strength of sin is the law. Paul's, Paul's talking about the law of God here. And he's not suggesting that the law promotes sin, but he says that the law expresses the holiness of God, the holy character of our God. And so it could not pers- uh, possibly encourage sin, but it reminds us that the penalty for sin is death. The law reminds us that death is a reality. Sin seizes that pronouncement, that, that condemnation of us, and sin is that which whispers in our ear. Every time you break God's law, every time you disobey, you deserve to die. You deserve death. The glory of the gospel is that Jesus Christ received our penalty. That he bore our sin. That he took our payment and made it for us. So that he could fulfill the law of God perfectly. He was the perfect law keeper. He was the sin bearer and the law keeper. When he finally comes again to rapture his waiting people, this gloomy triad of death and sin and the law will have absolutely no more hold on us. The truth is that we don't have to wait for that day to raise a chorus and to praise Jesus. We can take Paul's words as our own right now. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 57 of the text. One last idea here this morning. 
I think we derive also from the, the realities that Paul is talking about here with the resurrection, not only confidence for the future, but I think we derive from those realities also confidence for our work in the present day. The ability to carry on, to keep on keeping on. I mean, what a great comfort and confidence the resurrection body gives for the future. I mean, we, we haven't gotten there yet. We're not there yet. And, and the scripture holds us in that tension between where we are now as believers in Jesus Christ who are redeemed, who are forgiven, who have the hope of eternal life until that day when we will be ushered into eternal life. The now and the not yet uh, tension is always there in our lives. That glorious moment we're still waiting for. And so there's this tension in life that, that is ours. Does the resurrection of the body have any help to offer us there? Yes, it does. Paul tells us that reflecting on the reality of our future glory should yield steadfast, immovable faith. We ought to be firmly faithful. That ought to change us. The, the, the reality that we have the promise of a resurrection ought to make us steadfast in our faith, Paul says. It also ought to make us, he says in verse 58, abundantly fruitful. Firmly faithful means that we're steadfast, that we're immovable, that we're, that we're not like the Corinthians. The Corinthians were carried away by every trend and every fad and every struggle in their society and their day. They tried to make the church blend and fit with society. They actually, instead of being a, a they, they were like a thermometer. They indicated what the temperature of the world was. They were called to be a thermostat. They were called to control the temperature by the grace of God at work in their lives. They were living for the day of the culture. They were yearning and adjusting and modifying the faith to fit the times. That's not our calling. In addition to being faithful, they were called to be abundantly fruitful. Abundantly fruitful. Now think about that for a minute. I, I really... I was really convicted by thinking about what it means to be abundantly fruitful. Paul calls the Corinthians to be always, look at his words, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That word abounding, that word abundantly uh, refers to being excessively, uh, superfluously rich um, uh, Christians are, are to be those who are really wealthy in their good works. Our lives, our faith ought to flow out of us in superfluously rich ways that we please God. We, we ought to be working in, in, to the best of our ability, to, to the strength of our ability in every way that we can to abound in Christ's work. How do we truly characterize our service to the Lord? Though? When you're honest, have you been always abounding? <laughs> Paul, we should be all. You know, we abound in 
efforts to make money, to make a living, to make a reputation for ourselves, to, you know, do the things of, of life and, and to live life. And then we half-heartedly serve the Lord. Oh, we show up on a Sunday. We're, we're here three weeks out of four, you know. We, we're, we're, Paul says that we are to be always abounding in the wealth of our good works. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your neighbor is not, or your labor is not in vain. Paul kind of ends this discussion here about the resurrection with some practical words says to you and to me that Christianity is not just a neat, nice package of doctrine that we hold uh, in our minds. It's not just a, a little fire insurance policy that we carry around in our coat pocket that says, oh yes, uh, when I die, I'm going to have eternal life with Jesus. Christianity is so much more than that. If we really grasp the doctrines of Christianity, we will abound in good works. How are you doing? I can do better. Can you? Oh, what a great comfort. What a great hope. What a great victory is ours because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Let me lead us in prayer. Father God, I ask you this morning that you would take your word and that you would let it have its way with our hearts and our minds, and that we would be more and more like our Savior Jesus, that we would indeed be, as the Apostle Paul calls us to be, abounding in good works for your glory and for your praise. Father, help us to hold on to the hope of the resurrection, to know the reality that we are yours and that there is nothing that separates the child of God. Oh, Father, help us as we live in the tension of the now and the not yet. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.